Podiums, an audio exploration of climbing World Cups from previous years and previous eras. I'm your host, John Bergman. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk some comp climbing. Podiums. I'm, you know what? Let's. I'm gonna let the music run a little bit here. Keep it going, cause we're here. We're here to party. Should feel festive. We're starting a new World Cup season. We got a new calendar to chip away at. We're gonna spotlight the highs and the lows, and the good boulders and some weird boulders, maybe the who's who for a new season. Yeah, let's go. Past podiums. New season. Okay. So I think we should take a second to get oriented. We're about to begin examining the IFSC's 2015 Boulder World Cup circuit. And it's worth doing a bit of reflection on just who stood out in 2014, the season that we just concluded on this podcast. And I think that's pretty easy to do because it was a heck of a standout year for Japan's Akio Noguchi. She won the final four events of that 2014 season in the women's division. At the very end of it, she had a real nail biter a battle to edge out Miho Nanaka in Laval to, to close out the last Boulder comp of the season. Just a great 2014 for Akio. And Great Britain's Shauna Coxie also had a, a great 2014, winning two events in a row prior to that four-event streak by Akio Noguchi. The men's wins were a little more varied in 2014. Dmitry Sherfutnov won a couple of events Jan Hoyer won a couple of events too. Rustam Gelmanov closed out the season with a win in Laval and Guillaume Glermondé was the silver medalist there. So take all of that in. That's kind of where we left off at the end of 2014, the Boulder World Cup season. So we'll keep all of those competitors in mind as we go forward into 2015. And with that, today's episode covers the first event of that 2015 Boulder World Cup season. If you have come this far listening to this podcast, you probably expect this new season to start in China because that is where the 2013 and the 2014 seasons began. But we've got a bit of a swerve here. The first event took place not in China in 2015, but across the world in Toronto, Canada specifically at the Thornhill Community Center in the kind of the greater Toronto area, with the final round taking place on May 31st, 2015. And to that point, let me introduce today's special guest on this episode, Tyler Norton. And the reason Tyler, well, Tyler can be on any episode he wants, but specifically this episode, the reason... Tyler's here today is because he was at this competition 
at this final round in person. Tyler is from Canada, lives in Toronto. So we'll talk to Tyler. We'll be able to get some insider info as we go through this final round. If you don't know Tyler, he is a mainstay of comp climbing reportage. He's the founder of Plastic Weekly, which started as kind of an audio podcast, and then it morphed into a YouTube vlog or podcast, whatever you want to say. And it also, there's a really active Plastic Weekly Discord. And he's also just one of my favorite people, one of my best friends. And uh, I always love talking to him. So Tyler, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing great. And that was that was a very warm intro. Thanks, man. Even even Eddie Falk didn't get an intro that good. And I've got none of the gossip, unfortunately. You know, he he brought all the gossip and all I can talk about is, you know, the temperature in the gym and, and what the walls felt like. But I'm really happy to be here. I've loved listening to this show for the last couple of seasons. Uh, so I'm going to have a great time talking about this. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. And I, I guess maybe before we get into the final round itself, and we I've never had a guest on where we go through the boulders, so it'll be really fun to, to try this for a first time. But before we do that, could, maybe could you just talk a little bit about where you were at in 2015, at this final, May 31st, 2015, where were you at in terms of your comp climbing fandom, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I was really like, you know, I was a, a youth competitive coach. And more relevantly, for a couple of years, I had been emceeing at a local competition that was held every year at my home gym, which was, you know, regionally significant, not internationally significant, just something that was important to, to our Toronto area community. And believe it or not, after after the first two Toronto World Cups in 2013 and 2014, the plan was to have their old MC back to to get the crowd hyped up. And that was Pete Woods, believe it or not, from Alberta. Unfortunately, for 2015, he had a personal commitment across the pond. And so he was unavailable. And I got the call instead. Uh, And that was what dragged me into the IFSC community. Earlier this year in 2015, I had attended a Canadian event, which also doubled as a Speed World Cup out in Victoria or Central Sandwich officially. And a couple months after this uh, Toronto World Cup, I ended up in Italy for a Youth World Championship. So 2015 was really my first year of no longer just watching, but actually being involved in international competition as a coach mostly, but now as an MC. And so this is really a, a nascent moment for me in my career. And I I went into re-watching this event with such fond memories. And those memories are still there, but it was also a lot of fun to watch this event for the first time and, and really be able to look at the event objectively, you know, seven years in the future. Had you watched this event since you were there in person, Aside from watching it for this episode, had you watched the the YouTube stream of this event or did, were, was your only memory of it actually being there? My only memory of it was actually being there. I, I had looked uh, at the stream in the past to find little clips, to find little moments of, of you know, we're going to talk about some of the big moments uh, from this event, obviously. So there were some things in my memory where I wanted to go back and reference, but I haven't watched the stream in its entirety. So this was a, this was an eye opener to see what it looked like for, uh, for the rest of the crowd. And man, the, the, uh, the experience for for the people watching at home was really different from what I remember inside the building. So maybe we'll, we'll talk about that. 
I do want to hear your thoughts about the building because it is a very unique venue, especially when you're comparing it to the venues that we've seen on the 2014 circuit and the 2013 circuit. So yeah, that'll be good. Let's, let's just jump into it. The live stream begins. Adrian Battersby is on commentary and he is joined by Sean McCall and Sean barely missed out on making it into these finals. I don't know about barely, but he missed out on making it to these finals. He finished the event in 17th place and which is why he's able to, to slip into the commentary booth. Livestream begins. We get an establishing shot of the community center and the boulders on the wall. And in my notes here, I wrote that my first impression as a viewer of this live stream is that everything looks really nice. It's good lighting, it's good seating. The boulders are presented in a good way. So yeah, I'd love to just kind of hear what it was like there in the community center. And also if you know anything about the community center itself, I mean, we get on commentary that it, it's hold, it holds a lot of hockey games. It, I think there were about 4,000 people in attendance for this particular uh, final round. It looks like there were some empty seats, so it probably holds much more than that in terms of maximum capacity. But uh, yeah, talk about the venue a little bit. Yeah, I, this venue is is probably very similar to a lot of hockey arena community centers that that regular Canadians and Americans have in their own communities. Uh, imagine a big city, and this venue is just a, a couple miles outside of the reach of the subway system, so it's kind of in a suburban area. Um, I'm I'm not sure about the four thousand. That feels like a stretch. I'm willing to bet the crowd was under a thousand. Uh, it was a small crowd, but that's been the case with all of the Canadian events. Um, the Canadian events have all been on a budget. They've all been in venues that are off the beaten path. And uh, if you didn't know there was a World Cup going on, you uh, wouldn't have recognized it from, from the outside of the building, right? These events didn't attract any passersby. And so the unique thing is you have to be in the climbing community to find out about it. And in a city like Toronto, where there's always so much going on on summer weekends, you have to be a huge fan to decide to come to this instead of a concert or a festival or something. So the crowd, while small, is full of diehards. And like we saw at the 2013 and 2014 World Cup, they are crazy loud and they know what's going on. And so while it's always a small crowd in Toronto, they're some of the best. And that's one of my biggest memories from all the Toronto events was how loud these crowds were in these small arenas. Hockey arenas are not built to be uh, uh, to be nice sonic chambers where everything sounds good. They they're they're utilitarian. They amplify noise, and the arena vibe was was very strong. And that's something that doesn't come across in the stream. They really turned the the room mics down so you don't hear how loud the music was or how loud the crowd or the crowd's air horns were. Uh, that really faded into the background, and that was probably the biggest jarring difference between my experience being there. And the uh, the experience on the stream was I felt like the stream just didn't have the energy that uh, the in-person experience had. Yeah, there is one part, there's one moment where the crowd goes absolutely bonkers. It's a fantastic moment that will kind of tease the listeners here because I'll point it out when we get to it uh, in terms of the boulders. Sean McCall points out that the climbing walls here at the center are new. I mean, they were brought in, right? There aren't climbing walls there, but the climbing walls that were brought in are new. And Sean says the surfaces feel particularly coarse, and he compares it to as if there was sandpaper glued onto the wall. We'll have to see. As I was re-watching this, I was like, okay, I'll have to see if there are any moments where 
it seems like the competitors were maybe saved by the added friction when they smear on the wall or something like that. We'll just see if that that coarseness comes into play uh, at all. Um, Adrian Battersby, in terms of the sizzle, kind of selling it, he says, quote, we're just a few hours away from the infamous Niagara Falls. Now, I, I was wondering why it was infamous. <laughs> we don't get any explanation there, but uh, it's all good. He says, uh, hours away from the infamous Niagara Falls, where a lot of climbers stop off for a bit of relaxation, but there's certainly no relaxation here. It's high octane action for the next two and a half hours. I love these sizzle reels. You've listened to the episodes that I've gone through in 2014, 2013 uh, with Daniel Finn and whatnot. They don't really do this anymore. And I always like it's totally corny, but I like it. I like that they always come up with some poetic way to like sell these things at the top. It's it's made me think about how I'm going to do future commentary is is now that I realize at least John Bergman recognizes the first couple sentence that you say as a commentator now now I got to step my game up. Uh, yeah, no, nowadays it's it's kind of a uh, talks about where the venue is, but there's not much uh, suspenseful uh, theatrical buildup anymore. And, and I think that's a great little flair of this time of uh, of competitive bouldering. This is probably the only chance we will ever get to talk about Niagara Falls. I don't have any Niagara Falls story other than going fishing in a lake that was kind of near the falls. But in terms of being at the falls close up, I don't have any personal experience there. Do you have any Niagara Falls stories that you'd like to share being a Toronto local? <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't, man. We, we drove out there like after like high school graduation one time in the middle of the night. Um, Niagara Falls doesn't mean that much to people that live in Toronto. I think it's definitely one of those things that resonates more with, uh, with tourists. Well, speaking of Adrian Battersby, Adrian Battersby's commentary, he says there were quote shocks galore in the preceding rounds. So the qualies and the semis, Jan Hoyer didn't even make it through the qualies. And in terms of the semis, let's see here. A lot of a lot of men and women missed out on making it to the finals. A lot of big names and a lot of names that we've seen shine in the previous seasons. Sean McCall, as we said, Jakob Schubert, Guillaume Glermondé, Shauna Coxie, Alex Johnson, Fanny G. Bear, Miho Nanaka. That's a, a lot of heavy hitters there that were not in this final round. Obviously we have a pretty small field here, uh, six and seven, I think for the men and women, but uh, yeah, some big names absent there. The field ended up, especially on the, on the men's side, being a field of what felt like newcomers. Like fortunately we had, you know, the likes of Adam Andra and this very enthusiastic upstart of Nathaniel Coleman, Canadians love cheering on an American. So, so those really saved that field. Um, in the women's, it was a pretty bog standard field. It was the names we came to know and love, albeit without some of the favorite Americans and without Shauna Coxie. But yeah, the field really got shaken up in uh, in semifinals. It was uh, a lot of people in the crowd curious about what was going to happen. And certainly for the men's uh, route setting, a lot of interest in were the boulders going to be good enough for this field? And there was a lot of talk among the route setters leading into that round if they had made the right tweaks for who was going to climb them. Yeah, one of the most fascinating things is always trying to pinpoint the turnover years. And it's sort of at top of mind right now for you and I, because I think we're seeing that somewhat in the, the current World Cup scene. And going back here in 2015, I think we see some of that in the, in the men's division. I don't know if we're quite seeing that turnover yet in a big way in the women's division. 
but we'll see it. I think it'll be easier to tell once, once we get through this event and we can look at the podium, kind of see whether it's newcomers or, or the old faces. I want to point out that the chief route setter for this event was Jamie Cassidy and their other setters, Percy Bishton and Mathieu Dutre. And there was, we get a mention that there was an issue with the website for the semifinal round. It, it sounds like I'm looking at my notes here. Um, it sounds like there were some technical difficulties with, in terms of updating the scores, I guess, or something like that. Very kind of a time capsule of that era. It's not something that obviously now we can go back and look at all the results and it's no big deal, but Adrian Battersby does make a point to point out that there were some technical issues. Well, speaking of technical issues, on the very first day of qualifiers, right as the climbing is about to start, I get handed a microphone. I turn it on, and as I'm about to start speaking, the microphone sp literally split in half. So that was for my, that was my intro to this World Cup was my microphone falling apart as it was put in my hands. Uh, it's still on my Instagram. If you scroll back to 2015, June of 2015 or whatever, it's still there, just a microphone on the floor in two pieces. Uh, so the the tone of this World Cup, especially by the time we got to finals was, can we please survive this? Uh, that that was palpable, not just with Adrian Batters being the broadcast crew, but also with the root setters and the event organizer. This is something that is always fun to, to see the difference between how something comes across on the live feed and how it was behind the scenes and whatnot. And this was why it's great to get Eddie's insights. If anybody listened to that interview with Eddie Falk, he had some good notes about some of those comps from the 2014 and just how, how, I don't know, challenging and problematic some of this stuff was. And yet you watch the live stream in a lot of cases and you don't, you don't notice that stuff. It looks totally fine. This is a little bit of an exception. We do get some technical difficulties in this final round, as we will see. Um, and one thing I noted, and this I think was true in the 2014 season as well, but it's very noticeable here, is they are really touting the live chat. Uh, Adrian Battersby and Sean McCall, they are trying to get people engaged. Uh, they're, they say that they're open to answering questions. So they want people to write in to, with questions. But Sean McCall has this line. He, he says, quote, I'm doing the live stream, but I'm here for the competition. I don't want to get questions on like, Sean, what's your training like at this point? What are you doing next week? I'm here to answer questions about the competition. So Sean McCall is all business here. He does not want any personal questions. The humorous thing comes, though, just a, a second or two later, Adrian Battersby asks Sean McCall a personal question. He says whether or not he says, Sean, do you listen to music uh, when you before you come out to compete? So Adrian Battersby did not get the stern memo from Sean McCall about no personal questions. <laughs> And, and it was it was so funny listening to the two of them and how they chose to address the chat. Uh, and and it's something where, again, this was seven years ago. Streaming was not quite a new thing on the block, but it was for climbing. And trying to balance how much do you interact with it was, uh, was an interesting question. And for people that had been broadcasters for a long time, how do you do your job when you have this instant feedback? I hated how they interpreted uh, or how they interacted with it in this particular stream. I don't want to hear the commentators scold the people in the live chat for for their language or their type of comments i i i hate that kind of stuff and and so i'm really happy that 
we moved away from that. Although at this point we don't have a live chat at all, which I think is too far. But uh, yeah, that was something that ruined my experience watching it live on the stream. Uh, was um, having to hear Adrian interacting and and being mad at the audience, which just didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. And he shouts out whole countries too. At one point, he says, "Hello, Denmark." <laughs> Denmark, <laughs> Denmark has entered the chat. Uh, let's go through the finalists here. We have, because of the scores of the semifinal round, we happen to have seven men and the normal six women. So in other words, there will be one male competitor that's always going to come out and start climbing one of the boulders before there's a, a woman climbing. But for the most point, for the most part, the competition is split screen. You have to do that thing where you watch both at the same time. It's not ideal to try and watch that way where you have a man climbing and a woman climbing. Anyway. The men finalists, the seven of them are Alban Levier, Manuel Cornu, and Jeremy Bonder, all of France, Adam Andra of the Czech Republic, Jongwon Chan of South Korea, Kokoro Fuji of Japan, and Nathaniel Coleman of Team USA in his rookie season, actually, on the adult circuit. Tyler, as we said, we'll go through how they did on all the boulders, but just looking at the names there, anything you want to say about any of them? Yeah, I think what was fascinating was the presence of the amount of French athletes in this final. Um, Team Japan, a lot of these young climbers, Kokoro Fuji at the time, including not being somebody that was that well known to the casual viewer, it was still at a point where we probably expected to see more Japanese athletes in finals than French athletes, for instance. So seeing that French trio was a bit of a surprise. And like we said before, there was a lot of expected names that didn't get through to, uh, to finals in some cases, let alone semifinals. So as somebody that was supposed to be a, a, an MC for this event, I was trying to take notes on these climbers. And I do remember drawing a blank on Nathaniel Coleman uh, and having to go to the USA Climbing website and struggling trying to find past results from nationals and things like that. Uh, and there wasn't much uh, about Nathaniel at this point. So it was really hard to start to build a narrative for this competition. The obvious narrative off the top with the climbers we have is Adam Andres, the guy to beat. Aside from that, John Wanchan's been around for a couple seasons and is a likable character, but still hasn't had uh, consistent success. Uh, Kokoro Fuji is in his early days. Uh, and then, yeah, all of the French climbers for the most part are pretty unknown, at least in, uh, in North America. Yeah. I hate to be always referencing the current world cup season that we're watching, but it does seem like we're starting to see a resurgence of the French team in terms of depth. And here in 2015, we see that they had some depth. So you can almost pick out the years when they started to dip and now we're seeing the year when I think they're in terms of upswing, they're kind of coming back as a as a multi person squad. Uh, we'll see. But it just seems like they were that that was the case here in 2015. Seems like it's becoming the case again in the present day. The women, the six finalists are Alex Puccio of Team USA, Eula Verm of Germany, Akio Noguchi of Japan. Katharina Saravine of Austria, Anna Storr of Austria, and Melissa Leneve of France. Uh, Miho Nanaka, who was, as we said in the little intro, one of the standouts of the previous season, 2014, she finished in seventh. So she has that unlucky position of just barely not making the finals. Some good intrigue in those names. Uh, there's some younger competitors coming up. I mean, obviously like Alex Puccio's 
she's there. She's kind of been a stalwart for a bit. Uh, Anna Storr is still in there. She can never be counted out, even though we know at some point we're going to see the the end of her her real dominant years. We'll see if this is it. We'll see if 2015 is 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 it, or if it continues into future seasons. What do you think about that list of the six women? I think this list is 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 one of the this is my memory of competition climbing is these women is these incredible women who so consistently made it to finals event after event after event you know save for one or two people that might float in depending on the event and of course shauna coxley is part of that pool as well bad luck at this event um this is always what bouldering especially women's bouldering is going to mean to me beyond Yanya Garnbretts and all that's happened before. This is where, uh, this is the field that I first really connected with. And it's great because they're all winners, uh, save for one. Uh, they're, they're, they're all winners. Uh, they've all had success. They all have different styles uh, and they're all friends for the most part. So this group of climbers is always fun to watch. You never quite know what's going to happen. You can say there's a favorite, but anybody can win on any given day. And uh, this happens to be one of those events. It was, uh, I was this, like I said earlier, this, this is, um, it's the women's field that carried most of the interest going into finals. That's where the intrigue was. Yeah. I look at this list and it's incredible whether you want to use the word legend or superstar or, you know, however you want to sprinkle it, look at this list. And right away, there's at least four superstars, legends, whatever. And you could probably make a case that there are more than that. Uh, Awesome list of finalists. I, Give me that list of finalists any day, and it, you're going to have a, a great final round, I think. Uh, we will see. Anything else you want to say before we jump into the boulders? Anything about the atmosphere? Anything about just kind of what you were expecting when you were sitting there ready to watch this comp and you were looking at those finalists in the moment? I guess all, all I would say is that in the in re-watching this, I was surprised at how calm I sounded because uh, going into this, I was extremely nervous uh and especially having to interact with you know as the athletes come out introducing and then telling adam andre to stand somewhere else you know you you don't quite know you're a man until you have to look into adam andre's eyes and tell him to to move his butt somewhere else uh so i looked pretty calm apparently but this was uh you know as we're about to talk about these boulders i'm thinking back to myself getting ready to MC for that round and uh it was uh i was I was not necessarily prepared for for the different types of action that we were about to see. So let's talk about these boulders. All right, let's talk about the boulders. Let's get into. I'll do. Let's go over men's one, men one, men's one first. Uh, to describe the boulder, it's a shouldery pull up to the middle of the wall, and then it's into a, a dihedral, and there's a big jump to a 3D pentagon shaped volume, and there's a pretty far away finish hold a a prism shaped volume Uh, athletes come out manuel cornu is the man to go first as we said he climbs all by his lonesome to start things off he takes him a bit to dial in to the jump he finally does stick it with just about two seconds left on the clock so that that jump really eats away at his time attempting that gives a great performance but ultimately cannot progress to the top uh, Sean McCall has a great call. He says he, that Manuel quote, tickled the top hold, which I thought was good. I didn't write down how specifically how each competitor did. I know Nathaniel Coleman though was another standout. He's wearing this bright blue and green striped 
jersey or striped kit. And this is very memorable. And it's it's very memorable because for a long time, all the photos of Nathaniel Coleman that you could find on the, online of him competing were photos of him wearing this blue and green striped jersey. This was this was like synonymous ubiquitous. This was this was Nathaniel Coleman. When you thought of him in your mind, you thought of this jersey for a long time. Oh, absolutely. It was, I think it was one of those years where you you try and get the jerseys from your provider, but they run out of sizes and the color you want. So so this year the the American team ended up in this wild neon kit. And like you said, you know, the moment I always think about with Nathaniel Coleman is that slow-mo veil clip from Louder Than Eleven, where he hits the hold with like what two fingers and then one of them pops and he just holds it all in on that middle finger. And of course, he's wearing this kit. It's this is this is the Nathaniel outfit. No kidding. If they ever make a Nathaniel Coleman action figure, yep. I, I hope they put like they put this jersey on him so you know the era we're talking about. 100%. And speaking how you said that we said this was Nathaniel's rookie season, you said that it was hard to find info about him. To that point, Adrian Battersby calls him Nathan Coleman a couple mm-hmm. times. So it, he was so new that people didn't even know his name. We might have got a Nathaniel Wilson in there, too. There was a few interesting name creations, for sure. The alter ego, Nathaniel Wilson. Uh, so anyway, about the performance, Nathaniel Coleman sticks that jump. He does it a little quicker than Manuel Cornu did. He has about a minute left. And he Nathaniel does top this one. And it's a cool top, too. He basically campuses the entire block. Uh, so good stuff from Nathaniel, really coming out strong. Most of the other men then do end up topping this boulder as well, including Kokoro Fuji, who flashes it. Let's see here. Alban Levier tops it. Adam Andre tops it. So I think all of those names, Adam Andre, Alban Levier, Kokoro Fuji, Nathaniel Coleman, those are kind of the early names to watch in this final round. What do you think? I think Nathaniel's, first of all, uh, it, reinforced our our stereotype of american climbers being all powerful uh his his like you said he finishes it with a campus on a move that had just been established is very difficult uh and then separately my my other notes are just that adam andre looks so lanky climbing this boulder i don't know how else to say it but from from the big launch out in the lateral dyno up to that finish move then he's all limbs and uh i hope that's not what i look like when i climb but those are my two biggest notes is nathaniel coleman goes all American mode and then uh, and uh, Adam Andre lives up to his uh, body type. That's my memories of men's number one. Good stuff. Uh, let's talk about women's one. It's a trio of pyramid shaped volumes goes up a dihedral as well. has some pretty reachy moves to some really unforgiving slopers along the way. I really wrote that those slopers look look pretty hard. One of the more memorable moments on this boulder, comes from Melissa Leneve. She tries it for a bit and then she spends a long time brushing those holds, cleaning them so long that they even pointed out on commentary that she's taking a really long time. Uh, But good for her. She wants her holds to be clean. In the end, though, she cannot top this one and, and she has to settle for just reaching the bonus. Most of the other women that come out then do top this. Eula Verm is a highlight. She's got a great flash of this one. On a store, Akunaguchi, Alex Puccio get up it in, in just a few attempts each. This is the boulder that has probably the most 
controversy, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, because you get a lot of the women, Akunaguchi, Anastor, Alex Puccio, they get up there and they put their foot on the wall, out of bounds, out of the black tape, and they get called down, have to reattempt it. I personally rewatching this was really mad where that black tape was because that black tape was very, very close to uh, it, how, how to describe this. It, it was almost unnatural to keep your foot outside of the boundary there. And I don't think that that's how out of bounds tape should be. I, I think it should, you should at least be allowed your natural body movement uh, and it wasn't here. I don't know. Maybe I'm making something out of nothing, but thought the tape was a little strict. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, this was kind of the, the apex of crowd energy in, in this comp almost until the very last boulder was the crowd's reaction to seeing climber after climber, uh, Melissa Leneve gets the top and she gets called down because of the black tape. And then who else was it? Anna Storr, Akio Noguchi, uh, Eula managed to get through it. Um, I think Cuccio got called down. Cuccio gets called down as well. So you got to imagine the crowd energy was not having a good time with this tape. And you're absolutely right. Um, while the athletes were allowed to preview and they would have been able to see that black tape when they're in that stance going for the finish, aside from all of the stress that they're going through as they're trying to match a very bad finish hold, the black tape is around the corner and out of their field of vision in that moment. And so it's not weird to think that they, they would forget about it and just be trying to look for a stable position. None of the athletes were trying to use the holds around the corner, but the black tape was all that mattered. And even a smear on the other side was enough to invalidate the top. And it killed a bunch of competitors. Akio Noguchi topped that boulder three separate times. Uh, you know, we talk about Colin Duffy having done that earlier this season in 2022, and it's painful to watch. Um, but uh, uh, it, it really set the stage uh, for for the rest of this finals in terms of not just technical difficulties, but now also errors happening on the wall. And it was uh, it was a, a, a really interesting vibe. What do you do as an MC when the crowd is gaining momentum in that sense, in sort of in the negative way? <laughs> You know, I'll be honest, because the mics were so quiet, I didn't actually notice to see how I reacted in that moment. But I think if if I didn't do this, then this is what I would do now is I would certainly just let it ride. Because as you heard, and I think it was a Keo's attempt, the crowd starts booing uh, loudly and it wasn't a, a joking uh, boo. It was uh, it was serious discontent with both the tape and then also just a, a, a not perfect judging call, not not an egregious one, but but uh, just granting a top when they shouldn't have. Um, yeah, in a moment like that, let it ride. You're not going to control the audience. There's nothing you can do about it. You just got to let that energy flow. Uh, so whatever I did then, that's what I would do now. And it's kind of like good press is any press is good press, right? Any, any crowd reaction can be good reaction to an extent. Like it's good that the crowd is invested in the action, whether it's, whether they are for the action or against the action, right? At least they're, at least they're vocal about it, which. Yeah, uh, entirely. And, and you need to go through some of those troughs in order to get the, the big peaks later. So it's worth it. Yeah. Let's go on to the second boulders. Tyler, why don't you, We'll just trade back and forth. Why don't you take us through men's two and women's two? 
So men's number two is another fairly uh, simple boulder in terms of the number of moves going on. Basically out of a low start, you've got a short lateral dyno, you climb up and mantle on top of that, uh, and then you're going out to a finish jug. Um, and this one had quite a lot of tops. And unfortunately, this becomes one of the more forgettable boulders, frankly. Uh, Manu Kornu has some success and flashes it. Nathaniel quote unquote Wilson flashes it as well. Um it, it was it was one that very quickly went past and the women's climb, in my opinion, was the stronger of the two uh uh for the uh, uh for the two the men's man I'm I'm botching how to say this. Men's number two is overshadowed in my opinion by women's number two. I think Adam Andra also topped it. Alban Levier gets the top as well. Uh Jeremy of course is not having a good day. It doesn't send it neither does Jong Wan Chan. Uh, so not a particularly memorable boulder. Did anything come across as uh, as you watched it? I had the same reaction as you. I mean, it wasn't a dud by any means, but there was something about it that just I feel like was a little bit of a miss. I think some of that might be due to the last move because they really hyped this move up as if or if from the sound of it to to top it. It sounds like the competitors are going to have to do this really big jump which will be crowd pleasing and, and some might make the dino, some might not. That doesn't really end up being the case at all. It's just kind of a, a dead point. And if, mm-hmm. for Andra, he's a tall competitor. It's not even a dead point. He just kind of reaches for it and it's pretty easy. I guess Nathaniel Coleman kind of has the flashiest uh, version of it, so to speak. He kind of does this slam dunk style move, but even then it doesn't look like a high risk, high reward dino or anything like that. And I, feel like if it had been a little farther away, a little bigger of a dyno, that might have made it a little more exciting. Yeah, the the all the difficulty from this climb came in the zone territory where you're trying to make this traverse to to a blind foot. You're on an overhung wall. All you've got to hang on to are some like undercling side pull slopers. It really was kind of a slow moving boulder. Uh, a lot of foot slips It's just that kind of energy. Not a lot of fun to watch, in my opinion. Yeah, and the other note I wrote is that Jongwon Chan has a really big, in the scores, not literally, but he has a really big fall in terms of going from flashing men's one to not even topping this one. So it goes from being up there in first place to really being in quite the hole early on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, women's two was was the one I enjoyed a lot more. Uh, this one again goes off, uh, goes up a a gentle overhang and then through a slight corner. This climb was really about bad holds in terms of you know slopey flat surfaces, trying to create a lot of tension between your hands, trying to make sure your body's not flying too far because you don't have the security of crimps or jugs. Um, Anna Shore looks excellent on this boulder. Um, her confidence is frankly what shines the most uh, on some of these climbs that a lot of the other competitors can't do so coming out first melissa leneve just can't make this climb go right after her anastora like i says walks out and flashes this very difficult boulder um, and you see through the rest of the competitors having to put in some serious work to make this thing go uh akio and yula also get the flash with different styles which makes it uh, more fun to watch um, and then Alex Puccio closes out this boulder, uh, which really, really hurts, uh, uh, um, 
if I if my notes have this correct, it all came down to that final hold, um, trying to lay back on some volumes, pressing into an opposing wall and making a big reach up. And unfortunately, while she has the power in other boulders, she didn't have it in this one. Yeah, that top hold is kind of a big Waco pocket. And mm -hmm. Alex Puccio is able to get one hand on it. It's not really, she doesn't really latch it securely, but she does get it. She kind of slaps it with one hand, but she's not really even close to getting that second hand on there securely. That's the heartbreaking moment of this boulder, I think. But like you, I really like this one. I wrote down that this was probably my favorite boulder of the round. In my notes, I, I said it's basic, but good. That was my description for mm -hmm. it because it's just kind of this ascending curve with on these pentagon shaped volumes they kind of angle up the wall and it finishes on that pocket uh, one thing about it, when eula verm is attempting adrian battersby calls her the current world and olympic champion which was an interesting uh, slip of phrase there foreshadowing not for not so much for eula verm but for the olympics um, I, I didn't even catch that because, of course, she was she was the uh, the world champion and European champion at the time. Of it. I didn't even notice that. That's how that's how acquainted I am with the Olympics at this point. Doesn't even don't even it, bat an eye. It just it just glosses over you that, oh, the Olympics weren't even a thing then or climbing in the Olympics, we should say. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's some real good nuance. I think the big crux for this one, aside from that top hold, like Puccio trying to go for the top hold there, there was the midway crux where they had to put a really high foot uh, and then kind of crank up on it. And there was a, some interesting variation of beta there. Katharina Sarvine tries to do it as a heel hook. I think Eula Verm tries it as a, a heel hook as well. Uh, Anna Store ends up using the front of her foot. She uses a toe, which seemed to work a little better because it seemed to be once they, if, if they used a heel, it was harder to disengage from that. Great boulder overall. I love this one too. Yeah, and I, I just want to emphasize how how it really isolated some of the styles of the climbers and their weaknesses. You know, the the climbers who did get to the top were comfortable with their upper body strength, being able to hold big campus Gaston sometimes going out to the zone. And then, like you said, that big reach through and the move after, uh, were they climbing through it confidently? Uh, Akio's send was extremely elegant, using all of her length and center of gravity in the best possible way. Alex Puccio typically powers through this thing, and she does again, and really is just stymied by that finish so this was a great showcase boulder if you want a good summary of what the climbing styles of the stars of this day are this is one of those boulders you should watch yeah definitely and that's a good lead into what i like to do is kind of like the midway status check just to see where everything's at in the scores after two boulders in the men's division it's kind of a three-way race between adam andra nathaniel Colbin, coleman and alban levier they've topped everything so far so it seems like it could be the three of them vying for that that podium the spots on the podium we will see obviously two boulders left and in the women's division it has its own little three-way cluster near the top with Anna Storr who's climbing awesomely super confident Akio Noguchi as well and Eula Verm and I think Eula Verm is, is just a bit ahead having flashed everything so far so the big question in the women's division is can Eula Verm hold on to that lead, that slim lead that she has here, or will someone else overtake her on these last couple boulders? Do you have anything to say at this midway point about anybody there? 
Well, I think the one thing I'll pop in to say really quickly is, is the styles of the men's boulders so far are starting to show a pattern. And this will continue where, where you've got kind of uh, these, these boulders with very short chapters, you know, getting into, uh, you know, mantling into the start, get into a launch move, go for a jug. And this kind of showed up a few too many times for my taste, whereas the women are having to confront longer boulders with more consistent, steady movement. Um, and they'll get a little bit, a bit of variety coming soon. Uh, but that pattern was something that stood out when we were there at the event. And I remember that being remarked by, by the audience. One other thing I'll mention uh, is, is that this event, uh, Kilter was the hold sponsor. And when you look at this wall, you notice how uniform the, the appearance of this wall is. You've got um, uh, uh, dimension volumes covering the entire thing, these big dramatic gray volumes, which got a lot of attention. And then also the pink and blue holds from Ian Powell at Kilter. And a lot of them ended up being shallow pores to make them the appropriate difficulty. But what is so interesting, particularly at this time when Kilter is fairly new to the scene, is how inscrutable a lot of these holds look on the live stream, which as I, as I try to objectively look at these boulders, you realize how little information you have as an audience member in some of these climbs to understand what is it that they're supposed to do in this next hold sequence? Where are the hands supposed to go? How good are the hands? It's very unclear if a, if a hold is in cut or not, if it's a two-handed jug or if it's a one-handed edge. And I thought that was really different from particularly the climbing that we see today where edges are so defined, crimps usually are in a contrasting color. This particular event, it was really hard to read the holds from the camera views that we were seeing. You know what would be really Cool. This your what you just said is really accurate. It made me it prompted me to think about this at a final round or any round, I guess. In the audience, if if you go there in person to an event, they should have a piece of plywood, and they should have the holds, all the different types of holds that are on the wall that are for the boulders or the lead wall or whatever. They should just have them there on the piece of plywood, and people that are walking by or walking to their seat or getting up to go get a refreshment or whatever, they could. Like, look at the hold. They could touch it. They could feel it. They could check out the contours and see how slim it is or how beefy they are. I think that'd, that'd be a really fun interactive element that I think they could add. You, you could always make it even more interactive and invite the audience to join the athletes during preview and just have a thousand people groping the start holds of every boulder if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you could. Yes, you could. Need a little more crowd control for that. I'm just spitballing, you know, just fun uh -huh. ideas. <laughs> Well, let's go on to men's three and women's three. Now, we said at the top, there are some technical issues. It's right around here. I think it actually starts to happen at the end of the second boulders, but it becomes really noticeable here on these third boulders. There are some audio issues. There's a constant hum in the speakers. It's really unfortunate because it is very, very distracting, and it kind of stays there for a lot of the the rest of the live stream really. And we end up finding out it sounds like it's from a microphone because I think it might've been from Sean's microphone because then he says that at some point he and Adrian will just share a microphone. But even after they say that it's the buzz is still there. The hum is still there. So it sounds like you were not the only one dealing with microphone issues no. uh, there. It sounds like Sean and Adrian were having some trouble too. And it comes through on the live stream in the audio. 
I, I do remember looking back and, and an interesting note is that Adrian and Sean were parked in the penalty box of, of the hockey arena. So if you're curious where the commentators were, it was in the penalty box facing the wall. And I do remember turning back to seeing the two of them sharing a single handheld mic, whereas typically they would both have headsets. Um, so while I, I couldn't understand the effects on the stream at the time, uh, it was something I remember uh, seeing from the floor. As a side note, did you have much interaction with Sean and Adrian at this event? Or was it pretty, they were doing their thing and you were doing your thing and you never really ch chatted with them? Uh, Adrian and I chatted briefly just to talk about camera assignments. Uh, a lot of the camera operators at this event, at least, were uh, done by volunteers. So we talked a little bit about who would be appropriate for that. Uh, with Sean, the big question that I went to him about was the fact that the finals, I think it was, of this event were on Akio Noguchi's birthday. And so as the MC, uh, myself and my my uh, co-MC had had the idea, maybe it was something where we wanted to sing happy birthday to her. So I spoke to Sean because he was somebody that would know her better than I did. Uh, and he gave me some good advice on how to approach that kind of uh, that kind of thing. So that's I think that's the only reason Sean and I spoke that weekend. What What was his advice? His advice was not mess with her head uh, going into a finals, which I think was sage advice. You know, it didn't make for a great show. I thought it would be a lot of fun and a great surprise. And I thought it would come across on the stream really well. Um, but I think he was probably right. Save something like that for afterwards. I don't think we ended up doing that, at least not on the stream. But uh, but he made a good call. Let's talk about men's three, women's three. Men's three is a slab. It heads to the right. It goes across a pair of pyramid volumes the competitors at one point are, are pretty much no hands maybe they're just kind of using their hands smeared against the wall there Albon Levy and Nathaniel Coleman get the only tops on this boulder and I wrote down that with that with those tops from each of them they really start to separate from everyone else on the scores that's what's always so great about the third boulders of these rounds is it's like the third boulders really when you start to see a lot of times people start to pull away John Wan Chan has one of the best falls on this thing, kind of humorous. He's it's the slowest peel off of the wall that maybe you've ever seen. He just kind of outstretches his arms and falls back almost like he's falling off the diving board backwards into a pool or something like that. The other note I wrote is that there's a false start by Adam Andra. He doesn't quite put all his limbs on the correct spot to start the holds. And that costs him costs him an attempt. So those are my notes. Yeah. What'd you think of this one? This boulder was a bit of a snoozer. Uh, unfortunately, it was a very slow climbing boulder, uh, very precarious feet. And like you said, second climber out, Nathaniel Coleman has a lot of trouble with it, manages to get the top after the buzzer is already gone. So that was a nice moment. And it wouldn't be until Alban Levier comes out and flashes the thing, which was really stunning from the audience perspective, uh, you know, just emphasizing the, the attitude of who is this guy? Uh, you know, he had, he had the round of his life. Um, but yeah, the Zhang Wan fall, I remember just hearing Celine Dion and a, and a pan flute in that moment, just a little Titanic throwback as he just splays his arms out in full cross and just lets himself trust fall back onto the mats. And, and in that moment, it just really emphasized how futile that climb felt for some of these athletes it was just like, you just have to give in to the, to the greater, you know, power of this boulder. There is simply nothing you can do. Uh, I thought it was a really poetic fall. Something else I want to mention too. I can't remember if I noticed this on the women's boulder or the men's boulder, but in terms of the signage, there is an advertisement or a little placard or whatever, a logo for Joe Rockheads. And I 
think it says 25 years on it. I think it, the gym must have been celebrating its 25th year anniversary here. Obviously, long, long time Toronto mainstay climbing gym founded in 1990. Simply just because you're here and because I noticed that sign on the on the boulders here for this this third these third boulders. Uh, can you give us like a brief history lesson of Joe Rockheads, like founded in 1990? Um, What's the story there? Yeah, I'll give a brief one and then kind of kind of sway to another point. Yeah, Joe Rockhead's founded by uh, the Bergmans, uh, the Bergman family, Bob, Sharon, and um, Brian Bergman back in 1990 in downtown Toronto, the first commercial climbing gym in Canada. And they were climbers who obviously were huge outdoors, but were also really interested and, and supportive of competitive climbing. And the Joe Rockhead's name becomes synonymous with competition climbing and then competition bouldering in Canada through the 90s. Uh, and the 2000s. Um, it's where I work right now. Luigi Montilla, the current owner of Joe Rockheads, is actually the guy that organized these three uh, Canadian World Cups. He wasn't he didn't do the Canmore one, but the three in Toronto, he was the guy. Uh, and so that link is very strong. But I think the more important uh, link is that to kind of get an understanding of how this World Cup uh, was supported is that the big three names supporting this event were Joe Rockheads, which is a Toronto gym, Alley Up, which is a Montreal gym, and The Hive, which is a gym in Vancouver. Those were the main sponsors of the main sponsors of this event. It wasn't, you know, equipment providers. It wasn't a bank. Um, the the funding for these events came from a really grassroots level, and they are the ones that allowed the event to happen. But that kind of reality of the funding is also why these events didn't carry on past 2015. So Luigi and the whole organizing team, I'm sure is very grateful to those gyms, but the financial reality that those are the people we had to go to, to make these events happen, uh, really kind of predicted the demise of a Toronto world cup without support from the national federation or larger sponsors. That's interesting. So maybe that's what it will take barring some other, external income that's what it would take to get another world cup back there is really some banding together by various entities various gyms and whatnot yeah and again you just noticed that the, this world cup wasn't organized necessarily with the cec which is the national federation they were really at arm's length and that's probably not the kind of environment you want to organize a world cup in you probably want all of the resources of your national federation uh behind an event like this and and that's something that canada's kind of uh, growing and and i think one day we'll we'll get into hopefully uh but at this point in time it was a very different landscape yeah you compare it to the world cups nowadays particularly the ones in salt lake city where you and i just were not that long ago and that really was seemingly a joint venture in every sense of the word between USA climbing the, the national governing body and the IFSC as the international governing body. I mean, if even down to the, the media contacts and whatnot, it seems like you were working with both people there. Like you said, not the case. It sounds like back for this 2015 Toronto cup, uh, women's three is also a slab. It's got a, a stand and press, low that's there's kind of this big macro or big volume overhead that kind of serves as the keystone for this boulder and then at the top it's got this tiny tiny mono hold as the finish i think we'll see it's it, it's kind of sold as a mono i think some of the competitors maybe sneak a second finger in there uh, but this block breaks up the field in its own right particularly Uliverm 
who, as we said at that midway score check, has cruised up everything so far, does not top this one. And that's a pretty big shock when I was watching this. She comes really close, too, which adds to the drama. She just can't quite reach that mono hold. And Sean McCall has some great commentary here, noting the beta. You know, she kind of needs to move her right foot a little bit higher on this volume that she's standing on to be able to get the purchase to reach for that for that mono hold. But Uliverm can't do it. Most of the women don't top this one. Most of the other women don't top this one either. The only top comes from the person who we've said has been climbing so confidently this entire round on a store. So on a store tops this and storms ahead on the scorecards. And there's some real nice nuanced beta here too, with on a store getting a, and some other competitors do it too, but uh, getting a, a toe hook on the arete to reach, to reach that mono. I think Akio Noguchi tried a heel hook instead of a toe hook, which was some nice variation on this one. Yeah, the only three climbers that are relevant on this boulder are Akio Noguchi, uh, Anna Storr, and Yula Verm. So you're talking world champions and bouldering World Cup champions. Uh, everybody else couldn't even get a zone on this thing. Um, Anna's is certainly the top to, to note because it's the only one. And I remember being so enamored with, with her attitude and her poise after peeling off the finish so barely. Just her center of gravity just comes out a little too much isn't prepared to hold that barn door. She gets right back on it, gets to the top, and with a ton of body tension in her lower body, just makes that compression to confidently reach across and match the mono. Um, Akio Noguchi, she spends like, what, like a minute and a half up at the top, holding the finish with one hand, but not finding the body position. And like you said, Eula Verm, she gets to the top three separate times, tries three separate betas, but can't make it go. Um, so I thought this was actually a really fun boulder to watch uh, because it was obviously extremely hard and we got to see some of the very best climbers just trying to work through that one particular crux of the finished move. I think it sometimes can be difficult to make slabs crowd-pleasing, and this is a showcase for how it should be done. I think this is a good example of a slab boulder that keeps the crowd engaged and manages to be really exciting despite the fact that the competitors are moving so slowly and so methodically. Good stuff. That brings us to the last boulder. Why don't you take us home, Tyler? Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, we finally get to the center of this wall, and this is the steepest moment uh, of the uh, of the bouldering comp. And finally, the men get a long climb with lots of holds and lots of moves. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't that successful for many of the climbers. But we are on the blue holds on the left of this uh, of this steep wall, probably about like thirty degrees overhung. Steep thugging, a little bit of campus, a little bit of feet first, giant throw at the finish of this boulder to a blocked hold. So what was once a jug is now really just like kind of a one-handed finger edge. Um, unfortunately, we don't get to see anything uh, as is typical um, <clears throat> out of Manu Cornu. He's really not having the, the best round of his life. Uh, Nathaniel Coleman manages to graze the top of this thing. Uh, like Sean said earlier, tickling the finishes is pretty much what happened this time too. Um, Kokoro is the one that jumped out and his, his send almost goes unnoticed by the crowd just because he makes it happen so fast, but he gives it that big launch and gets that giant slam dunk with the one hand holding onto it unbelievably. And that ends up being, if I remember right, the only top of this boulder 
And so it, unfortunately, this finish boulder for the men has very little effect on the standings of the field. Um, Kokoro doesn't end up on the podium. The the attempts to zone uh, on this boulder don't have any effect on the the gold, silver, or bronze. So uh, unfortunately, it uh, it in my opinion was uh, was not quite effective. And as Sean mentions on the stream, things could have been really different if they hadn't blocked that finish chug. He in particular thought it could have been an opportunity to shake up the field and see some actual thrills rather than just seeing guys lunging and struggling through a very steep physical boulder. I thought this boulder was really cool. I like you. I was a little bummed that the podium does get determined before all the men had climbed and Kokoro as the only top it's great stuff. It's just not enough to really push him too far up the ranks based on his performance on the previous boulders. The big moment I said in the intro, there was a moment where the crowd just goes wild it is for me, I noticed it on Nathaniel Coleman's attempt. He's does this, the feet first section where he kind of swings around and puts his feet up. He doesn't quite hang there. It's not quite a bat hang, but he does put his feet up there. And then he reaches up and turns it into this 360 campus move. Anybody listening, if you want to just go back and find that on the live stream, it's at the two hour and six minute and eight second mark. That's kind of where Nathaniel Coleman starts that really crowd pleasing move or series of moves but as great as it is though sadly it i think that that might have kind of gassed him a little bit because he can't stick that final hold obviously largely because the hold is blocked but uh he tries it again and still can't do it um what else did i write down here uh oh there were no russians at the in this competition and sean mccall mentions on commentary that maybe they had some trouble getting some visas. I don't know the reason I couldn't, I searched around a little bit online to see if I could find some maybe message board chatter about that from back in the day. I will have to take Sean's, you know, Sean's guess as a good educated guess. Maybe there were some visa issues for those Russians uh, competing here, but yeah, no rush, no Russians in this Toronto comp. Um, and yeah. And so that's, I just wrote down that the blocked hold, that last hold was pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, women's number four mirrored the men's climb in that it was on the same angles, uh, right beside the, the men's final uh, boulder as well. Uh, this one opens again, kind of like the men's does with a climber that really can't get any success out of the start. Melissa Leneve just cannot get this opening dyno. I guess I should recap how the boulder goes. You're basically starting with a blind, steep dyno laterally to a big jug, but it's kind of hard to to scope it out from the uh, from the start point. Once you hit that giant jug, you're climbing up through a pinch and an edge to get to this volume stack. And this volume stack, which is right before the finish hold, is really where the whole boulder comes down to, is how are you going to approach? Are you going to pinch this stack? Are you going to meat wrap this stack? Are you going to lay back off it and use a lower hold for some support? And that's where the essence of this boulder all comes from. Melissa Leneve, like I says, just cannot stick this opening dyno and spends four minutes trying. And where it gets interesting is Anna Shore comes out next, styles this dyno, which is a huge relief for the audience. Finally, some development on this boulder. But when she gets to this volume stack, she never quite manages to approach it in a way that lets her pull to the finish. And that leaves the door open. Finally, some intrigue leaves the door open for possibly a Keo or a Verme to end up getting the gold, depending on how they climb. Um, 
Katka Sauerwein comes out next. She finally manages to get that that dino, I think, like seven attempts in. So again, another uh, another uh, uh, slow four minutes for the crowd. And then finally, we get into the meat of it. Akio Noguchi comes in and she gets this excellent layback uh, beta off of this volume stack and just uses it basically as a fulcrum to get herself to the finish. Uh, not enough to take the gold for mana, uh, but she does, I think, lock in second place at that point. Eula Verm comes out, and again, she's one of those climbers that gets stymied by the volume stack. She's trying compression moves. She's trying to stem and like hook with the corner. Uh, it doesn't work out for her, and again, she loses the opportunity at gold. And what freshens up this boulder as the finish, uh, John, I'll let you kind of talk about this, this final one, but of course, it's Alex Puccio on, on what we call Puccio home territory, which is just steep bouldering, uh, and she gets the flash to close out the event. Thought it was a super fun moment. It was a super a super fun moment, and uh, and I just love boulders that sort of funnel down into these situations where it, certain competitors, if they flash it, then they win it, right? It's just, it's like so simple, but that's, that's the best. The simple storytelling makes a lot of times for the most exciting conclusions. And that's kind of what you have here, particularly with uh, Eula Verm when she comes out, it's like, okay, if she tops it, then she will win. She doesn't quite top it. Uh, Honest Store gets up pretty high on this thing about 20 seconds left. She's looking good, but then she has a real costly foot slip. She doesn't top it either. Yeah. Good way to close out the round. I think it was a good way to have a lot of those big stars that we talked about to kick things off here. Honest store, Eula Verm, Akio, Alex Puccio. They're all kind of in the mix here at the end, which makes it really exciting because I think looking at that, that list of finalists at the beginning, you would probably guess it would probably be kind of a, a real battle between, those four women at the end here. And that's kind of what it comes down to. So it's a good way to conclude it. Let's go through the podiums here. The men's podium, as we said, it's determined before that fourth and final boulder really finishes up, but it is gold medal, Albon Levier, silver medal, Nathaniel Coleman, quite the statement, rookie year, rookie adult world cup comes out and gets the silver came really close to getting the gold uh, and third place, Adam Andra, for the bronze medal, the women's podium gold is on a store, even without the top of that final fourth and final boulder on a store still managed to just look super confident the whole night gets the gold medal, silver medal, Akunaguchi, uh, and then the bronze medal is Eula Verm. So great podiums there. What do you think looking at that list, Tyler? You know, my memories at this point was that I got to call the podium and I'm, I'm definitely making this episode all about me at this Please point. Please do. But, Please do. But it was, those are the memories that I, I still have strongest from this event. I think because the the pressure of having to to talk through an event was over, we finally got to the podiums and Anna Storr in particular, because, you know, she had a season previous to this that was it frankly framed as a letdown because 2013, she won pretty much everything. And then in 2014, she won almost none of it. And so to start this 2015 season with a victory, I, I actually nailed this one in my memory. I remember saying, don't call it a comeback. Uh, it's Anna Storr. And, and as I don't know how, how big into foreshadowing you are, but of course this ends up being her final gold medal. And so something I get to 
you know, really hold dear to myself is that I got to call Anna Storr's final gold medal. And that's definitely going to be one of the highlights of my, my climbing career. Uh, and for the men, Nathaniel Coleman just became this, went from nothing to an incredible crowd favorite. Uh, Alban Levier should have been the bigger story, frankly, because it was one of those comps where the magic of the moment, him having the perfect energy and the perfect style for these boulders, which just fit him perfectly, while the rest of the field had an average performance. This comp should have been about Alban Levier, but because it was in Canada, right next door to the United States, and Nathaniel Coleman just had such a, a magnetic uh, style of climbing, he's the guy that got all the attention. Uh, he had that big scar on his shoulder from a scrape on the wall. And uh, and those are the moments I remember was Nathaniel Coleman, you know, becoming a bigger favorite than Andra for a few minutes and Anna Storr uh, getting her final gold medal. So that's that's what resonated with me. I also think it's fun to look back at these World Cups from years ago and think that they will probably have some intrigue for Olympic buffs going forward. And I wrote down that this is an early showcase for Nathaniel Coleman. So anybody that in the future is really wanting to do a deep dive of the Olympic climbers and where they came from and their journey that brought them to the Olympics or brought them to eventual Olympic medals and whatnot. This is, this is kind of ground zero for starting with Nathaniel Coleman's career. Women's podium feels like it could be a podium from previous seasons, 2013, 2014 with Anish on top, Akio in the middle and, and Yula Verm as well. Uh, those are pretty much the crushers that we've seen now for several seasons. And I think it's interesting to compare that to the men's podium, which is a little bit of a new crew. You have Nathaniel Coleman, and as we've said a couple times, he's a rookie, new name. And Adam Andra, too, he's not a new name, but he was not closing out 2014 on top of podiums. And so it's interesting that that he was able to, to snag a, a podium place here. So it'll be really intriguing as we continue to watch this 2015 season to see whether it is a season of the old guard or whether it is a season of the new guard or whether we do continue to kind of see this mix on the podiums throughout the season. I love this event. This, even before you and I talked about this and, and I learned your ties to it and whatnot, I've just all, I've, I just love this one. I think it's good boulders. I think the atmosphere is really good technical difficulties, audio difficulties, notwithstanding. I just think it's a, it's a unique event going into this hockey arena. I think it holds up. I think anybody now could go back and watch this and, and really dig it. I think it's a, I think it, it sets the tone for the years to come, uh, particularly with Nathaniel Coleman. As you said, it, it is kind of the, the beginning of his story on in the international stage. Interestingly, at the time of this recording, he's never improved upon that silver medal. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's sitting with that number two at the Olympics and, and his best World Cup performances. Um, yeah, my takeaway from the event, uh, the one thing we always joked about was, man, it would be nice to have you know the, the sirens and the horn go off. Like in hockey, when you get a goal, that, you know, the arena just lights up and we were kind of hoping we could do something like that when somebody scored a top. Um, I thought the energy was great. The crowd was good, but I was a little bit disappointed after watching the stream, how little of that atmosphere came across. Um, the lighting isn't very theatrical. There's not much show or glitz uh, to this event. It was extremely utilitarian, a brand new wall that they were trying to learn how to use, a brand new venue that they didn't know how to operate in. And so I was a little bit disappointed that the show really didn't come across on the live stream, uh, but the energy was there. Hopefully the athletes felt it when they were in the room the same way I did. 
Good stuff. And I, I hope we can get you back on to talk about more events in the future. You know, I'll have to talk about that off screen, but thank you so much, Tyler, for coming on the show, sharing your, your insights of this event real quickly before we get out of here is, can you plug where people can find you, where people can find plastic weekly, all that good stuff. Well, you can always find Plastic Weekly on YouTube. That's the best place to find it. Or just PlasticWeekly.com. All the links to uh, to the Discord and stuff is there. Otherwise, come by Joe Rockheads, buy a day pass, uh, come hang out and talk competitions. I'll, I'll always be there. And you you have texted me and we were, we were chatting about this. People could go to the gym, to Joe Rockheads, and they would be able to touch and grip some of the holds from this Toronto 2015 final round. They're, they're still in rotation at the gym is that is that a valid statement? Yeah, all of those holds are currently at Joe Rockheads and our sister gym called Up the Block in Mississauga. And actually, one last point I'll, I'll say really quickly as a as a little bit of trivia: take any World Cup that's ever happened in Canada, be it the Boulder events or the Speed World Cup. Every single one of those World Cup walls is accessible to the public saturday to sunday whatever you want to call it all week long you can find the speed event at central sandwich that gym is still there the 2011 canmore wall is accessible at factory climbing in edmonton this wall uh, used for the 2015 toronto world cup you can climb on it at boulder house in victoria and of course the, the toronto 2013 and 2014 wall is housed at gravity in hamilton so if you want to climb a world cup wall and you want to get on the holds they're still out there you can still check them out up here in canada Real quick before we get out of here, thanks again for listening. Also, thanks to Audio Coffee for doing the music. And if you want to go back and watch the round that we just talked about, you can find it on the International Federation of Sport Climbing YouTube channel. See you next time.